Hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast with me, Joe Wisby. My guest for this episode is Colin Hall, who is here to discuss his book, The Songs the Beatles Gave Away. Colin is the custodian of Mendips, John Lennon's childhood home in Liverpool, which means he has a unique perspective on John and Paul's teenage years. So he begins the book with a look at that era, before telling us the stories behind the songs and the lives of the artists that sung these pieces that John and Paul gave away. He also tells us a few tales from his 20 years at Mendips, including an unlikely encounter with Bob Dylan. Colin Hall, hello, welcome to the Beatles Books Podcast. How are you? Fine, thank you very much, Joe. It's uh, good to be invited onto your your podcast, which I enjoy very much. Lovely to talk to you. We're here to talk about your recent epic book, I think it's safe to say, The Songs the Beatles Gave Away, which is yeah a mighty work of, of research and lovingly curated. And uh, I suppose an obvious first question really is, what made you want to tell the story of these songs that, that the Beatles gave away? Well, first and foremost, I'm a lifelong fan of the Beatles. I was uh, born and brought up in Liverpool, although I moved to the Wirral when I was young. I was born in 1949, and so consequently, as a teenager, the influence of the Beatles of the whole Mersey sound was inescapable, aware of them before they became a national phenomenon. So they've always been there. They've always been the soundtrack, as you were. I mean, you know, I used to go down the cavern um, and, and stuff like that. Many, many years and many adventures and much of my life later, I became the custodian of Mendips, John Lennon's former home in Liverpool, and I've been there for 20 years. I've met an awful lot of people involved in the Beatles story, and um, I've always been aware of the scene in Liverpool back in the 60s, and aware of many of the groups. I saw many of the groups. And I've always wanted to write something about the Beatles, I thought, wow, you know, there's so many books out there about the Beatles. Why write another one? Because you're only going to say what everybody else has said. And then I thought, I thought, well, I've got a few things that I've learned about John and Paul in my work as the custodian. And also I have a love of the 60s and Liverpool in particular and the, the scene that I witnessed and experienced. So unless I can think of something that comes at it from a different angle. I didn't think it was worth writing anything. Then I was asked by my friend Bob Harris to come up with some ideas for some radio documentaries that he was keen to do. And he'd come up to Liverpool and we were looking at the church field where John had performed with the quarrymen. And I'd said, you know, it's going to be 50 years next next year they performed because this was 2006. And he said, so next year's the 50th anniversary. And when that was done and successful, he said, have you got any other ideas? And that really focused me. And I thought, well, one thing you never hear about are the fact that there were some people, some artists who were lucky enough to be gifted songs by John and Paul that weren't covers that we all know about with a little help from my friends and and stuff like this. But there were songs that, that weren't cover songs. And some of them are obscure and some of them weren't that great. (laughs) But this is an angle that is forgotten about, largely forgotten about, not totally. 
So I thought, well, that, that's a different angle that Bob might like to cover, that we could cover together. So he said, yeah, that's a great idea. Like the day John met Paul, he said, let's see if we can get Paul interested, get him to do an interview. And Paul was instantly interested and agreed to do an interview. And so that gave us the green light from the Beeb to do that radio documentary. And Sir George Martin came on board. And then between us, we got some of the artists interested, Scylla, Mary Hopkinham. We got hours of interview. A lot of the stories, a lot of the info that we've got together, as they say, with films, it ends up on the studio floor. And so I thought, well, you know, there's some nice stories there. It would be a shame for that to be kept in the cans and never never heard or never read. So I thought, I'm going to write the book and I'm going to use these interviews to re-engage and to remind people of some of these artists, because some of them have been forgotten. So I said to Bob, what about me turning this into a book? And he was cool with that. And um, there were one or two artists who we'd not been able to contact. I made it my job to get in touch with them. That's how it all came to be. But it gave me also that unique perspective with which to write a book about the Beatles, to pull in also one or two things that I'd learned working at Mendip. Uh, so the first part of your book, slightly before we get to the, the kind of meat of the book about the songs that the that they gave away, looks at John and Paul's early years and the yeah. friendship that they have in, in Liverpool. Obviously, you're in, as you say, a unique position to comment on this. I was intrigued to find out if you think there are any kind of misconceptions about John and Paul in that, you know, the first kind of year or so of their friendship. Um, what was it that, that really kind of surprised you when you delved into their early friendship? Well, how different they were as characters. How different and maybe similar. You know, John is the quintessential rebel. At school, he's been, he's been the guy who will go up against the teachers and um, who isn't working and is causing his aunt all kinds of um, anxieties because she knows this is a bright kid, but he's going to fail. Try as hard as she can to just get him over the hump of his O-levels and into sixth form. She can see the impending disaster of his o She can't quite see the scale of what's going to happen when he fails all his O-levels, but she can see it coming. Paul, on the other hand, he's the guy who will always try to please and get enough done to make sure that that kind of calamity isn't going to happen. And he doesn't want to upset his dad. So as Cynthia Lennon so succinctly put it, you know, that they were as different as chalk, as to cheese, as individuals, but they were joined at the hip musically. So I think there is this perception of them as, as being um, very, very close. But I, I think I think as individuals, they, they weren't, close it was the music that bonded them and that was the closeness that's what gave them the closeness because they were very bright lads they're grammar school boys they're cut from a different cloth to a lot of the youngsters getting into rock and roll a lot of the youngsters are learning to play guitar and forming bands and like john and paul they're learning songs but john and paul are picking those songs apart and they're interested in the names below their song titles and the writing of it. But John is going off to art college and he had a lot of distractions and other friends, Tony Carricker, Jeff Mohammed, Rod Murray, 
And so there's a lot going on because there's a bit of an age difference. So John is a bit older. Also, he is going to art college and uh, experiencing a, a little bit more of life, you know. They're maybe not as seeing each other as much, although Paul will go to the art college parties and all of that stuff, sort of stuff and go to Gambia Terrace. But John's social circle is a bit wider than just Paul. They do go to each other's houses and they do, you know, write and they do get close. And then, of course, there is the death of Julia, which um, sends John off on a, an emotional bender, if you like. He's, he's absolutely devastated by this. And so I'm not sure how much time they're actually spending 58 after the death of Julia. I find that hard to work out. Even after 20 years in the job, I find that hard to work out exactly how much time they, they spend together writing. But I think the music was the balm. I think that gave John something and he could share that with Paul. So as the songwriting team begins, what was the setup as regards to Mendips and Paul's house at Fourfling Road? Where would they tend to go at this point to actually write songs? I think it was Paul's because Mimi was an ever-present. She was an ever-present and she was an ever-present tutter, you know. <laughs> she wasn't. She saw the music as a distraction. She He'd failed his O-levels because of Elvis Presley, you know, the guitar's all right, John, as a hobby, but you'll never make your living from it, the famous quote and all of that. She saw music as something that was diverting John from the path, and the path was education, and the path was looking to the future and something of substance and permanence to which she should hitch his wagon. And I think it was only slowly that she was coming round to the fact that it was pointless to oppose this because it was in, in him. She was a presence which made could make Mendips difficult. And so, although John had his little box room upstairs and Paul has, himself has told me that's where they would go, they'd sit in the bed up there and mainly listen to songs, I think, to learn. You know, as Paul said, we were a covers band. And I think it was those covers was like the language between them. I, I'm not sure they sat around and talked much about how difficult it was losing your mom and dealing with all of that. I think the songs were like messages between them. I, I don't know. Mendips could be difficult. That little bedroom could be a difficult space because the bed was across the window. So when they sat on the bed, being right and left-handed could impede playing the instruments because they'd be banging elbows. So I think down at Paul's, in the afternoon, they could sag off school and art college because school and art college are right next door to each other. They, they used to be one building when they were first built. And so they could get together at lunchtime, go down the, the canteen in the art college, uh, have a bit of lunch, play guitars, and then take a sabbatical. Get the 86 back to Paul's. And he's a latchkey kid boy, really, because his dad's out at work, but sadly mum's gone let themselves in, and they're going to have two, three hours solid learning songs, but also writing, eyeball to eyeball. They are joined at the hip, as Cynthia says. I'm always coming back to that phrase, joined at the hip, musically. But they can bounce ideas off each other. And it's a big thing, you know, a big leap of faith in each other to play a song, because kids weren't writing together, and you're trusting that person 
not to laugh at what you've done or and if they do it's only when you've built up a relationship and a trust in each other that you you trust that person's opinion and you value that person's opinion so i think they always felt musically that they had a soulmate that they'd found a soulmate and um, it was a bond that only they had absolutely uh, so so moving to the main part of the book as the beatles become successful and and they become the, a real kind of songwriting partnership where did the idea come from whose idea was it that they would write for other people that they would donate songs to other people where did that kind of idea originate from one of the things that's going on is that record stars pop stars are here today and gone tomorrow they don't last and of course they're young so the thing is then what do you do when you're 22 23 24 and washed up your career's over and you haven't been to college and you haven't got a degree john and paul have got this talent to write and w- what they w- realized was that if they could establish a songwriting reputation that went beyond the beatles they could become their idols goffin and king a songwriting duo of repute who could write for others So if the Beatles bubble burst and it was fully expected to burst I think the idea of writing songs for other people initially came from from that this kind of tradition of songwriters Rodgers and Hammerstein that kind of thing and so they saw themselves belonging to that kind of tradition and so they weren't averse as Paul says you know we weren't averse to that kind of conversation somebody said we were offered the opportunity to write a song commercially we could make money as well you know that that could mean buying a car for ourselves so that's not something we're going to walk away from looking beyond the beatles really because nobody has a crystal ball so i think it's interesting if we spend a little bit of time looking at some of the artists in the book that cover mm-hmm. beatles songs because you tell a lot of their stories in some really interesting detail and there are people that not everyone is aware of they're just a, a, you know a line in a book etc so i think someone that really kind of came across in the book and who gave the the foreword of the book is billy j kramer billy obviously covers quite a few uh, lennon mccartney songs through 63 and 64 tell us a, a little bit about billy first of all what's his kind of background how does he get into a position to to cover john and paul songs Billy was at Litherland Town Hall when they came back from Hamburg and they blew everybody away. He was blown away by the Beatles and he was an up and coming artist in Liverpool and he got to know them and John Lennon liked Billy J Kramer's voice. So he was someone that they knew and they were into his singing style. So when he is signed by Epstein i think mainly on john's recommendation they know him well enough from seeing him play live from hearing him a lot so they're tuned in to billy j and billy j is not a million miles away from george harrison in his singing so i think they can therefore fashion a song that they know is going to suit him and they also know that george martin as a producer is going to be able to add a little bit of spirit of magic to those recordings 
mm. bit of double tracking on the vocals. John liked double tracking. He liked that echo, you know. I think he was an easy artist for them to write for. So I think that's how Billy Jay came about. He was almost like a protege for them because his whole recording career in uh, 63 going into 64 was shaped by the songs that they crafted for him. I'll Keep You Satisfied was a song, a corking song, really, which they could have well handled themselves. And From a Window was another one. After and- that, that kind of 64, 65 period, Billy's career obviously then took a bit of a, a different route. What what kind of happened to him? Did the hits dry up quickly or where did his career go as the 60s went on? I think John and Paul stopped writing for him. I think, although Little Children was a massive hit for him, I think Brian had wanted him to cut a Beatles song at that point. And Billy was trying to break away and become a little bit more independent, have more of a say. He was very insecure, Billy J. Kramer. He always worried about everything. And as a result, the inevitable happens, really. Drink, drugs became a little bit unpredictable. And I think Brian Epstein also taking on so many acts, different artists, that his ability to shape and control their careers, manage their careers, became more difficult for Brian. And so the hand on the tiller, as it were, is no longer there. Billy isn't getting the songs. He isn't getting the promotion. Maybe his look also isn't in tune with how the 60s are progressing. Mm. He's too redolent of the early 60s. A combination of factors, I think, begin to kick in. Although he's willing to experiment and make changes, I think the loss of Brian as a manager, but I think also his own personal demons robbed him of continued success. In recent years, he was rebuilding his career quite successfully. Another really interesting artist, and maybe an even sadder story than than Billy, but an interesting (laughs) one nonetheless, is the figure of Tommy Quickly records Tip of My Tongue, one of of John and Paul's songs. Uh, Tell us a little bit about Tommy and why his career didn't take off. Was there something that, that you can specify around Tommy? I actually saw Tommy quickly on a Beatles store in uh, Liverpool at the Empire. I think he had the Remo 4 supporting him, who were a cracking Liverpool band. Tommy quickly was a very young boy. Brian had become convinced, I think, that he could shape Tommy into a solo act and all-round entertainer. I think this is how he saw him. But I'm not sure that Tommy had the stability as an individual to sustain that to, or, or to deal with that. And he took him away from his band, who really were his mainstay. And I think he, he didn't have that camaraderie of a group who knew him and who could just offer him that support and protection that he needed. And he was another one who money, fame, was too much for him to handle. He he couldn't deal with it. And Brian, on the other hand, couldn't deal with the fact that whatever he did, he couldn't buy Tommy a hit. And what you needed in those days was at least one hit to get you established, to give you a name. And Tip of My Tongue, his debut, I think Paul would say it wasn't his greatest song that he'd written. It didn't chart. 
thereafter, really the quality of songs that Tommy got. And although he, he took him to the States and he spent about 10 grand on, on that trip, it just would not happen for him. In those days, I think for young Tommy, he, he was kind of cast adrift. I don't know because I'm, I'm not a member of his family. I don't know, but I think he, he was cast adrift. He didn't have the support around him that he needed. He was host to a television show for children, I think it was, in Britain. When that finished, I think he went into hospital, and that was the end of his career in show business. And he came back to Liverpool, and as an artist, he's not been heard of since. Mm. And, and um, Is he still around? Oh, Is yes. He... I believe, I think I say in the book that he took a tumble and has not been well since. I tried to contact him for the book, but I was unable to. Whoever I asked, nobody. I think maybe, fortunately, would or could put me in, in touch with him. I think the big mistake was taking him away from his original band. And um, that was like his security blanket, if you like. And he was just too young to cope with not just the pressures, all that comes with being the centre of attention and given money and access to to things that you, you've never had before in your life. Another slightly more extravagant, eccentric figure in the book, which really leapt out at me, was PJ Proby, who, of course, most of us will know, covered Paul's That Means A Lot, which the Beatles did do themselves and did appear on Anthology 2 many, many <laughs> years later. PJ Proby was a, a bit more of an established act, but a similarly fascinating story which your book covers really well tell us a little bit about pj how what kind of figure was he in the mid-60s well pj proby was this kind of elvis presley looking guy but with a 60s makeover in his hairstyle he had actually sung some demos i think for for elvis and had gone out in america because he was an american texan i think he was known as jet powers but he hadn't quite made it in america he, he was a writer he was picked up by Jack Good for the Beatles special around the Beatles. And so he was a total unknown when he appeared on that show. He'd been given a makeover in the sense that he had this new image. He appeared on this show. He had this new name. So he was looking, I think, to kickstart his career in England. And of course, by now, the UK was the place it was the epicenter of the rock music industry because of the beatles so you can see the uk place to be and jack good has got an eye for talent and so he comes over and appears on this show so the whole world of britain all the kids are looking and on comes this amazing looking figure who sings great so he is the sensation after the beatles on the show so they want product, and they get product. They get Hold Me, which is the single. And it's a wild record. I think it still sounds pretty good today. Jimmy Page is maybe on, on guitar. and uh, He appears once or twice live in London. And Brian Epstein signs him up. He decides he's got to put this guy out on tour, strike whilst the iron's hot. And, of course, the kids around the country are clamouring. Can't wait to see... PJ, but PJ is PJ Proby. He's a bigger, than, a larger than life guy from Texas. He lives life at full throttle. 
Brian puts him out on tour as a co-headliner with Cilla Black. And off they go on one of these famous package tours. I mean, one of the great things about the 60s was the, the package tours. He goes out on tour. He goes out in this velvet kind of suit, but he's got these tight trousers come in at the knees, but they flare. And PJ just doesn't stand. He just doesn't stand at the mic and crew. And PJ is PJ, and he's all over the stage, you know, and he's cavorting, and he's and he cavorts just that bit too much. I split from the crotch down to the knee. It happens every each night. He goes out, and the press make a big deal of it because this is Britain. We know rock and roll wild. You don't split your trousers in front of teenage girls on the stage. The press get wind of this. They're waiting for him, I think, when he gets to Northampton. They're waiting for him. He's made all sorts of promises. Oh, it won't happen again. It was an accident. I'm really sorry. I apologise. It won't happen again. Goes out in Northampton. The police were a presence in every theatre on the tours in those days because they were having to deal with these screaming hordes of fans. It, it was a phenomenon, you know, that not just for this tour, for every tour, there would be a police presence just trying to protect the artist and protect the kids from themselves. The inevitable happens. Trousers go and outstep PC Harris, arrest PJ, and the curtains come down and he's taken that. And PC Harris is um, Bob Harris's dad and he's arrested. I, I don't know, public indecency or whatever. And, of course, he's immediately taken off the show and banned from performing live. And then everybody gets on the moral bandwagon, BBC. Well, we're not going to have him on television, ITV. We're not going to... So suddenly, from being this megastar, as it were, with the world at his feet, in Britain at least, it all closes down. And that's bad news because where you're making your money as an artist who, who did write his own songs, but who, who needs the exposure of live performance, he's suddenly got nowhere to go. And so although he did have hits after that, his next single, I think, was called I Apologise. But he found it harder and harder to get in back into that top 10, that top 20. And John and Paul knew him from around the clubs in London, but they knew him, obviously, from around the Beatles. It was making some in interesting records, but he asks them for a song because I think he can see a record written by the Beatles for him is a pretty good way of keeping that chart door open, keeping his name in the public's eye. And, and so having not been able to record a version of which they're happy and um, want to release for the soundtrack of Help, they've got that means a lot. Paul said we could never get it to work and I did tell him that and to be fair he made a good version of it but it just crept into the 30s I think and crept out again. He remains living in England and still here I think but had a fitful kind of career you know Jack Good remained loyal to him I think he, he cast him in one or two musicals and things like that he went on tour. One of rock music's uh, more colourful characters. I think that's how you'd describe him. Absolutely, and it's typical of some of the stories in the book. So, yeah, that that's just a, a few examples of some of the people that, that the book talks about. There are many more, both before and after that time frame, which the book covers, the songs the Beatles gave away. So before 
I let you go, it would be remiss of me not to talk a little bit about your time as custodian of Mendips. Just a few minutes, if if that's okay. So you said that you've been you've been there for for twenty years now. So how did your involvement kind of come about? Did you just see an advert in the paper, or how did you get the interview for the role? By chance. I was working with a couple of musicians called Sam Genders. A really good friend of mine said, Colin, you know, they're looking for a custodian at Mendip. You could do that. And what I read into that statement was that for the last 30 years, I've been boring everybody rigid by talking about the Beatles. I thought, all right, then I get it. So I I wrote to the National Trust and um I wrote so late in the application that they said, listen, it's Friday and applications close on Monday morning at nine o'clock. So I hadn't got time to write what I would call a proper letter and a CV. So I I stuck a little letter together and I'd just written an article for a magazine, which in those days I think was called Get Rhythm. I'd been out to Hamburg to interview Astrid and down to South Germany to interview Klaus. These articles have been run over two editions of Get Rhythm with Astrid's photos and Klaus's um, photorealism drawings. So I just stuck these two magazines in and said, look, this is my resume. And lo and behold, I got invited for an interview. And when I walked in the living room at John Lennon's house to be interviewed by one of Yoko's advisors, there were Astrid's photographs on the wall. So I could tell them what Astrid had told me about posing John, putting his hands here on the guitar. Also, I was an oldish man then, 20 years ago, 50. And um, I could talk about living in Walton, where I grew up, going the cabinet net. So it all fell into place for me. So I I was very grateful to Klaus and Astrid, really. Did you kind of take to it straight away? Did you enjoy it straight away? Tell us a little bit about how you kind of got used to, to doing the role. Well, because I applied late, I never got the spec for the job. And having attended the interviews and got through, because there were several interviews, it wasn't just one interview and you got the job, it was several, because there were a lot of applicants. <laughs> I got the job and patting myself on the back. Uh, and then they said, when do you think you want to move in? And I said, pardon? When do you think you want to move in? Would you Would you like to move in a week before you start the job or... Will, will it just be a couple of days, night before? And they said, you have read the spec of the job, haven't you? And then it dawned on me that they wanted me to live in the house. And I've got a house in Derbyshire at the time. I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to have to, I've got a dog, as well as wife and child and all of that. But my wife was off. She just accepted a job in Malaysia to teach. And she was hoping I'd go and join her. Anyway, we resolved all of that and I did move in. And for the next nine years, I was resident inside Mendips in the back bedroom, sometimes with my dog, who as an old dog did learn an old trick, and that was to stay quiet when the visitors were wandering around the house. It was funny because I was going between the two you know, residences. For me, Mendips was like stepping back into my childhood because there was no telly, and there was no telly in my bedroom. And there was no Wi-Fi, there was no nothing. And so I was getting the newspaper, I was reading books, I was but it wasn't it was a bit of a shock, but I soon attuned to it because that's 
life as I remember it. And strangely, that's how I remember it in Walton. When I grew up there as a little boy. And the bonus was every morning I would sit in the morning room and have my breakfast cooked in the in the kitchen where Mimi would cook John's breakfast and serve it in the morning room. And I would sit there and think, this is where John used to sit to have his breakfast and he'd look out on this garden. And that kind of set me up for the day. And the one thing I learned very quickly was to always, always remember that this tour is about John Lennon. These people have come from all around the world or just around the corner to see John's house. I have to remember that. I can't give a tour and be full on for that tour and then the next tour step back a bit and take a breather, you know. So every tour that comes through, that, that, that was my first lesson, that I had to be respectful of the people coming through the door and always, always remember that for them, this was really, really special and I, I had, had to deliver. Any famous faces that you've, you've taken around Mendips that you can, you can tell us? Any particular interesting experiences like that? Of course, they've been from horse fashion, I think it was. People just surprised me. My very first famous person, as it were, was somebody who I'd interviewed several times, James Taylor. And James was in Liverpool. He phoned me up and he said, you invited me to come to Mendix and I'm here. What are you doing? It was my day off. I went and picked him up and we spent the afternoon sitting on the lawn in Mendix, just chatting and obviously showed him around the house. Jackson Brown. Jackson always brings his band to Mendix when he's in town. What a lovely person he is. Most famous of all, Bob Dylan. Famous tour, that wasn't it? Incredible. I got got a phone call from the guy who drives the bus, Neil, and he said, if you don't get that tour you've got inside the house out now, Bob Dylan isn't going to wait anymore. I told Neil what to do. You know, I said, oh, go and get lost, Neil. But then I thought, you know, Dylan is in town tonight. He is playing. I got everybody together and we walked down the front path and standing right in front of the gate was Bob Dylan. I didn't know what to do. You know, I thought, wow. And he was there with three people. And there were two other people who I learned were ladies from North Wales who'd been on a shopping trip <laughs> and um, had decided on their way home to just do this tour. And I saw Bob's looking and he can see that the people behind me that I'm leading out to get on the bus to go down to Paul's have recognised him. He steps aside. The people leave Mendips and are getting on the bus, but fumbling in their bags, the phones to try and take a picture. But Neil is getting them on the bus because, as he says, we're already late. Eventually get Bob into the house. The ladies from North Wales are asking me who it is. And I, I realise they don't know who it is because Bob has got a hoodie on. And so when they've been at the back of the bus and he's been sitting in front of them, they hadn't recognised him. So I tell them, well, it's Bob Dylan. Very graciously, they said, listen, this is a wonderful story that we've got. If you'd like us to wander around the house and have a look, you focus on him. We've got a brilliant story to tell our friends, mm. but I think you should focus on him. One way or another, 
This is what happens. And um, I've composed myself because I'm thinking he's on the National Trust bus. He has not come here as Bob Dylan. He's come here as Robert Zimmerman. He's a tourist. That allowed me to focus on doing what I do, doing my job. And so that's what I did. That will be in my next book, The Full Story. He was delightful. He was so interested in the house. He said to me about the kitchen, he said, this is remarkable. It reminds me of my mother's kitchen in um, Hibbing in Minnesota. And I said, wow, I can't believe it. Mm. It's just incredible. And he latched onto that. And of course, he wanted to know where John might play his guitar and where he and Paul would play their guitars and that, that sort of thing. In the bedroom, he wanted to know if John wrote songs in there. was less interested in the guitar that's in the bedroom than in the book that he spots on the bed, Just William. Who's this Just William dude? He said. <laughs> and I, so I had to explain Just William to Bob Dylan. And <laughs> for me, that's one of the most amazing moments, surreal moments, standing in John Lennon's tiny box bedroom in Liverpool with Bob Dylan talking about Just William. Eventually the time came and um, he he has to go and he, he said, I'm not going to get back on the bus. I'm not going to go down to Paul's because I know that other group who were doing their tour of Paul's will be waiting, cameras, and I don't want all of that. So I'm going to leave now. But um, as we stood at the gate, he said to me, hey man, how do I get to Strawberry Field from here? Gave him directions and I, I always wondered, you know, did he ever... Did he ever follow those directions? <laughs> and a few years later, I had a guest in the house. And he said, Colin, you know what? A few years ago, I was standing outside Strawberry Field and this um, this limo drew up. And you'll never believe it, but Bob Dylan got out. He followed the instructions. That was a magical moment. There have been others. Uh, Debbie Harry and Clem from Blondie have been around. And what's magical about it is that it's the power of that group, of that man, of their music. It's just amazing how it has woven itself into the, the fabric of popular culture and how inspiring it is. And, um, and it's a force for good in the world. That's what I like about it. It's something that speaks about love and being kind to people. And of course, it's, it's great art it's great great music so to be a part of that for the last 20 years i am very very proud and very humbled and i'm a lucky man well hopefully here's to 20 more years doing that job <laughs> i'm not sure about that <laughs> well colin it's been really interesting talking to you both about your time uh, at mendips and of course about the book the songs the bills gave away colin thanks so much for joining me yeah, well, thank you very much for having me on, Joe, and uh, I really appreciate the time you've allowed me to speak.